0: So go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9, whereas the past couple weeks we've been going a chapter at a time. Well, we're breaking that this week. We're going a little bit more than that, about a chapter and a half, really. Uh, So in a moment, we'll read all of that. But while you're turning there, isn't it kind of funny how mundane the regular rhythms of our lives can be? We get into these patterns of when we eat, when we shop, when we sleep, even when we relax. And one week can start to look very much like all the rest at times. But then there'll be something that pops up that changes that normalcy, that knocks us out of that regular pattern. Something as simple as running into someone you didn't expect while at the grocery store. That can make the week feel entirely different, just that one difference. Now, you'll never guess who I ran into at the store today. Our lives are just this fascinating blend of the mundane and the extraordinary, things that change those mundane cycles. And those abnormal events are what add variation and change into our daily lives. Now, we normally know what the patterns of our lives are going to be like well enough. But when those abnormalities pop up in God's providence, they surprise us precisely because they aren't normal. Well, chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And that means that all things come about according to his sovereign plan. So whether those regular elements of life or the ones that take us by complete surprise, they are all planned out by God down to the last detail. So the surprise of the passage we're about to read is that Saul went out to find some lost donkeys. But he came back the anointed king of Israel instead. So God ordained all things so that Saul could rescue Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul points us forward to Christ who would come 1,100 years later to rescue us from our sin. And because Christ came to rescue us from our sin, we must flee to him alone. But with that introduction, let's read First Samuel chapter 9 beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 10, verse 16. Now, I don't have to tell you, that is a rather long passage of Scripture. So I'll do my best to make the reading interesting, and do your best to follow along and pay attention, because it is a very rich text. So beginning in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul's son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zaph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Well, the servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said. "'Come, let us go.' So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, "'Is the seer here?' They answered, "'He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes.' "...since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately." So they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, "...Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin." And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a, a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept. captive set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here for yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that went that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from their father and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he had turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So take a deep breath after that long passage. So we're going to break that down into four fairly brief points. So the first point is that Saul seeks donkeys. So a man of Benjamin named Kish is introduced in the text in the same way that Elkanah had been introduced back in chapter 1. So there, a special introduction for Elkanah was a narrative bridge to introduce his son Samuel, who would be the next major leader of significance in Israel's history. And now here we see the introduction of Kish, the father of the next major figure in 1 Samuel. So in the previous chapter, we saw Israel ask for a king so that they could be just like the nations around them. And the root of that word for asking is the same as the root for the name Saul. So the question now is whether this son of Kish will be the king Israel had asked for. By human standards, Saul was an impressive candidate for king. The author tells us that he was very handsome and taller than anyone else in the nation. And don't be confused by the term young man in verse 2. He's probably about 40 years of age by this point. That term young man, it applied to grown men who were typically in their physical prime. So really, by external appearances, Saul fit the bill perfectly for what Israel wanted. But when it comes to his wisdom, his character, his inner spiritual qualities, the author says absolutely nothing. That means that we're meant to wonder as readers about who this man really is as we continue in this text. What will Saul do and how will it display what is in his heart? So having set the scene of the narrative, we find Saul out with a servant, searching for his father's lost donkeys. Now, that was not an abnormal thing to do by any means. Donkeys wandered off all the time. But what is interesting is that Saul failed to find these donkeys. In fact, the author goes out of his way to inform us that three separate times Saul could not find these donkeys. Now, finally, Saul is ready to give up. He's ready to go back home before his father starts to worry about him. And it's interesting that the first Venture of Saul in scripture ends in failure and no ending. And in the ancient Near East, shepherding was considered a test. It was a test of one's ability to lead and to protect. One which Saul is currently failing. So from the outset, we have to just admit it that Saul is not looking too good. And if we connect the start here to the resolution at the end of the chapter, or uh, halfway through chapter 10, we see Saul return home to his uncle. And we'll talk about his interaction with Samuel in just a moment in the next point. But notice how he answered his uncle when he returns home. He only talked about events that pertained to the donkeys. Why did he not tell his uncle anything about being anointed? And why did he report to his uncle rather than his father, Kish? Now, it's possible that Saul was being wise in withholding that information. It's also possible that he was trying to honor Samuel, who anointed him privately. But I think from the start and this finish of this narrative, we should see some hesitancy on Saul's part to accept what had happened to him. He went out looking for donkeys and came home the elect king of Israel. What a bizarre series of events! Let's look at the next section, uh, point two, Saul seeks the word. So by the time you get to verse 5 in chapter 9, Saul is ready to throw in the towel and go home. He's failed to find the lost donkeys. But there in the land of Zuf, next to the city of Ramah, the servant came up with a better idea. How fortunate and lucky they were to be right next to the home of a renowned seer. Saul was ready to give up, but the servant is the one that keeps him going. However, Saul complains, even with this new idea, that, oh, we're out of food. We don't have any money to give the seer. It's not a good idea. But the servant had money to offer. So finally, he persuaded Saul to go see the seer. So after much encouragement, he finally went to seek God's word from this prophet. So they went in to the well outside the city just at evening. And that's when it was customary for the women of the city to go out and draw water. So they walk up at that time, the women are out there, they asked if the seer is in the city. Now, unsurprisingly, the arrival of a tall, handsome man at a common courtship and engagement spot had a certain effect on the young, single women there who were drawing water. Now, the English doesn't show this as much as the Hebrew does, but their reply to Saul's question was fast, broken, and... Excited, and it reads like they're interrupting each other, trying to be the most let's say helpful. So somehow, though, through all the babble, Saul and his servant were able to learn that the seer was in the town and that he had just arrived that day. If Saul had arrived a day earlier, he would not have met Samuel. He would have missed them altogether. Additionally, Saul arrived just in time to celebrate this religious feast at the high place in Rama. So here we see where God's providence and timing is remarkable with all of these events. So in they went, just in time, to see Samuel approaching them. Saul went to seek a word from the seer, but it seems that the seer was actually seeking him. But really it was God's word that was seeking out Saul here. So fast forward to the end of his conversation with Samuel. And Saul was given signs so that he would believe the word of God given to him. In chapter 10, verse 9, we see that all the signs Samuel gave to Saul came to pass on that very day. And the most prominent of those signs was that Saul would receive a new heart and prophesy. Now, don't read the term new heart and think of the way we often use that phrase. When we use that phrase, we're typically talking about conversion. But that's not what it means here in the Old Testament. It's talking about equipping for a specific task. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God rushing upon someone was for the purpose of preparing them and setting them apart for a special task. Just as an example, Samson had that happen to him multiple times in the book of the Judges. So the Spirit rushing upon Saul led him to prophesying with a group of prophets leading to this phrase, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, those who witnessed this event knew who Saul was. They knew that he was not a prophet, and they knew that he was not descended from prophets. So commentators, they go back and forth. Is this a positive thing about Saul, or is this a negative thing about Saul? It could be a positive sign that Saul is connected to the prophets, and thus he is a good candidate for king. But it could also be a negative evaluation, mocking his display, or how it compares to the man that these people already knew. So how do all of these events reflect on the king-elect? Well, Saul makes an optimistic evaluation very difficult here. In chapter 9, Saul displays no wisdom, there's no endurance, there's no preparedness. It's rather the servant of Saul that shows great perseverance and ability, not his master. Clearly, it's not Saul working things out in this passage. And if you've read First Samuel up to this point, then the city of Ramah should stand out to you. Add to this that Saul and his companion were seeking the help of a seer or a prophet in Ramah, then there's a pretty major character we should all have in mind as readers. Samuel was a national judge who had judged Israel for many, many years, for decades by this point. He was universally famous, not only in Israel, but even among some of their enemies. And the nation had just gathered at Mizpah under Samuel to request the king from him. And yet this passage makes it clear that Saul either didn't know who Samuel was at all, or didn't know he lived in Ramah. Then, in chapter 10, these men who knew Saul, who knew Saul's family, seem to imply that zealous Worship was something Saul was not known for. So the type of prophesying that Saul exhibits, it was a joyful and ecstatic form of worship. And it seems that Saul was not known for this type of zeal or reverence in his worship. So here in this passage, we see some good elements going on, but none of them are the result of Saul or his character. Instead, he is displayed as a rather goofy recipient of all these things. Let's turn to point three. Samuel finds Saul. So now we turn to Samuel's perspective as he gives God's words to Saul. And I want you to notice the stark difference between Saul and Samuel's behavior. Saul did not appear to know who Samuel was or that he lived in Ramah. But Samuel, the famous national judge over all Israel, not only knows the obscure Saul by name, but was expecting him. Of course, the Lord is the one who told Samuel that Saul was coming. God worked out all these seemingly minor events of a donkey chase in order to lead the future king right to Samuel and to tell him exactly what he should do about it. So Samuel, he may have been unhappy about Israel's request for a king back in chapter 7, but you would never know it by his actions here. He was attentive to the word of God to him. And Samuel was commanded to anoint Saul as prince over Israel because he will be God's instrument to save his people. The nation of Israel, they were crying out to the Lord for rescue from the threat of the Philistines. And the Lord cares for his people, so the Lord hears his people. And three times in verse 16, and then again in verse 17, God says, My people. His plan is to send a man to save his precious people from harm's way. Saul is the instrument of this work to rescue them. So whatever misgivings Samuel may have had about Israel asking for a king, he was thrilled to see God moving and selecting a king. And so without skipping a beat, Samuel says, I am the seer you're looking for and honored Saul with a kingly welcome. He placed him at the head of a prepared table with 30 important guests. Then he gave him the best cut of meat that was part of the sacrifice meat meant only for the priests. This was probably actually Samuel's personal priestly portion that he gave to Saul. So the most important man at the feast gave honor to somebody that no one else at the table even knew. So while Samuel doesn't tell the table why, by honoring Saul... In this way, he was introducing him to the most prominent people in Ramah and even Israel. This man was set apart by God for some sort of special task. Greater honor could not have been bestowed upon Saul. But the greatest event from Samuel to Saul had to wait until the next morning. As Samuel walked Saul out of the city, he sends a sermon ahead so that he and Saul would be alone. Then Samuel, he takes out an oil flask And he anoints Saul with the special anointing oil of Israel. Now, up to this point, this special oil, it had only been used to consecrate priests and the instruments used in the temple. It was such a special anointing oil that no common Israelite was allowed to be anointed with it. And with that special oil, Samuel anointed Saul to be prince over God's people. And so now Saul is said to have two purposes. First, he's to reign over Israel. And that means that his role is to restrain the evil of the people and to keep them in check. Because the theme of the people of Israel up to this point is a theme repeated throughout the book of Judges. And is that they all did what was right in their own eyes. Meaning they did whatever they wanted to. So now... Working with the priests and the prophets, Saul's first task was to lead them to faithfulness to God rather than rebellion. And then second, Saul was to save them from their enemies. The Philistines, the Amorites, the other surrounding nations, they were a constant threat to Israel. And Saul was the one whom God chose to be the deliverer of Israel from these enemies. But also notice that Saul was not to perform these tasks alone. The people rejected God as their king in chapter 7, but notice that the Lord has not given up his throne. He is the one who perfectly orchestrated all the events that brought an unexpected man with no ambition for the throne to Samuel to be anointed as king. Saul will only rule by God's allowance. And also, did you notice that Saul is actually called a prince over all Israel? And in one sense, this is true because Saul has not yet taken the throne, so he's a prince until he does. But more importantly, he's called a prince to remind us that God is the true king under which Saul will serve. The Lord has selected and anointed the Savior for his people in Saul. Well, that brings us to the final point, Saul's confusion in point four. So the passage we're looking at today is structured a bit like a sandwich. There are matching groups of topics as you walk through the text. So we started and we ended this text with a search for donkeys. You move one layer towards the middle and Saul is seeking for a word from a seer only to become somebody who's prophesying in the other part. And another layer in, Samuel welcomes Saul. Then we have Saul's reaction, which is what we're going to talk about in this point. And then Samuel sees Saul's shock, anoints him as a prince, and sends him off. So in the midst of these words of Samuel, his Samuel's actions and words, at the very center of this whole account is the response of Saul to how Samuel's treated him. That's the center point of this whole passage in chapter 9, verse 21. So in this verse, Saul reacts in shock to the kingly welcome he has received. The shock is real, but his humble response may or may not be real. Now, Benjamin, he was right to say, what is Benjamin? Because Benjamin was a lowly tribe. He had committed some horribly wicked acts. There had been an entire civil war against this one tribe, and they had been nearly wiped out. So Benjamin was the least of the the tribes. But Saul's clan was not very insignificant. His father was clearly a very wealthy and a very powerful, well-known man. So his humility may or may not have been true, but his shock definitely was. And just personally, if I went out to find a donkey, then I was made the guest of honor at a feast by the most important man in the country. I would be a little shocked, too, to be quite honest. But if we connect that, this shock reaction, this possibly true but possibly false humility, with everything else we know about Saul from this passage and the chapters leading up to and following these events in 1 Samuel, it's hard to take this shock well. Saul failed to find his donkeys. His servant was prepared and decisive, not Saul. He didn't know who Samuel was. Then he has no idea what to make of the feast, Now, the events after the feast appear a little bit better. But even then, those who witnessed Saul worshiping and prophesying were shocked at his new behavior. And his conversation with his uncle seems to be someone hiding from his calling, someone running from it, trying to ignore it. So if we take all these little details into account, what we see is not a very flattering picture of Saul. And yet, so we need to recognize that. But at the same time, we need to understand that God did not select Saul in order to make him fail. God did not make Saul disobey or fail in the years to come. Saul had everything he needed in order to reign over Israel and save them from the Philistines. If he obeys, if he walks by faith, God will deliver Israel through him. Listen to Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. So will Saul delight in doing the will of the Lord or seeking his own welfare? So that is the question going forward. Will Saul be faithful and rescue Israel? So that's where we are in the the text of 1 Samuel. So what are the takeaways from this passage? Well, first, God's rule over mankind is absolute. He ordains everything that comes to pass. So often we think about the big decisions in our lives as part of God's plans, but then We forget about the normal, the day-to-day events, the mundane things in our lives. But in this text, we see Almighty God using a wild donkey chase to establish a king. Is that how any of you would have planned that? Now, this doesn't mean that if we run to the store for some bread or some milk, that we should expect to come back as the anointed future president of the United States. That's not what this means. But it does mean that every Single detail of what we do somehow fits into God's plans. That makes it all the more important to honor the Lord in everything you do, every aspect, every area of your life. Because you never know when being kind in passing can lead to a gospel window with an unbeliever. You don't know when hope, while undergoing suffering and trials, could embolden another believer. When it could preach to an unbelieving relative. Nothing is by chance and nothing is inconsequential. The Lord has worked out every detail of your life just as he has worked out every detail of your salvation. Next, the salvation that was promised through Saul was primarily a physical one. Israel needed to be physically rescued from the Philistines. But what they needed even more was spiritual rescue from their sins. There are physical elements in your lives that you struggle under. Health concerns, family problems, and your own finite limitations living in a fallen world. But your spiritual issues are far more severe than those things. Israel needed a better Savior than Samuel or Saul, just as you do. They needed someone to rescue them both physically and and spiritually. And how fitting it is that we come to this text at this time of the year. Matthew 1, which we read from earlier. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And it is this Jesus in Psalm 2 of whom the Father says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the absolute rule of Christ. Jesus Christ is our complete Savior Rescuing us from both our physical and our spiritual enemies. And he's the only source of rescue from our sins and from this fallen world. And as Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That true king has come. That's what we're celebrating this season right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have come. That Emmanuel, you are God with us. And that because of that, we can flee to you. We can flee to you as our rescuer, the one who delivers us from sin and from evil and from death. Delivers us into your kingdom. The kingdom of the beloved son. Lord, help us to praise you for that. Help us to remember that even as we celebrate Christmas. That you came so that you might be our savior. The true king. Lord, help us to give you praise. Because you are king. Amen.